Amen. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. We've been teaching on the name of Jesus. We want to continue to go along that line a little bit. John chapter 14, 15, and 16, the the three chapters uh, that we'll be taking some verses of Scripture from this morning, as we have for the last number of weeks, is, uh, is John at the end of his life, some 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead, giving us a record of what took place on that last night that they were together. And uh, he identifies that the the theme of of that last night together that Jesus spent with his disciples, as you would well imagine, is Jesus talking about going to the Father. It's uh, just a matter of a few hours from the point in time that these events uh, that John relate to us took place. Uh, so Jesus is getting the last bit of information that he can to his disciples before he's separated from them um, by the, the trial and the crucifixion and all the things, events surrounding that. As a result, John tells us some things that uh, Jesus emphasizes and he puts great emphasis on his name. Uh, we've, uh, we've said before and spent a lot of time on really, uh, well, maybe not enough time, but a certain amount of time, on the fact that the church world, and, and I've been guilty of this myself, uh, has looked at the name of Jesus and the use of the name of Jesus as more of singular events. But Jesus talks about it more as a place or a position. When he's talking about the use of his name, he's not talking about whoever speaks the magical words in the name of Jesus shall have certain things that occur. But rather he's talking about because I'm going to my Father, I'm making a place for you in my name. Now, that terminology may be a little bit strange to us because we, we think of being in Christ as being saved, being in the family of God. But the Bible talks about the name of Jesus, being in the name of Jesus in the same way. So when Jesus talks about the use of his name, he's talking about salvation. In other words, it's not something, the use of his name or the, the, the opportunity to use his name is not something that was set aside for a select few as some of the church world has claimed. The apostles, they had special power from God. Uh, Jesus is saying that anybody that's saved, anybody that calls on the name of Jesus to enter into the family of God has the same right to the supernatural results that his name produces. We've, uh, we looked uh, uh, some weeks ago at the fact that Paul said, whatever you do, do in the name of Jesus. Well, whatever you do includes everything in your life, doesn't it? I mean, that would be work in the name of Jesus, whether you're an accountant or whether you're a lawyer or a mechanic or whatever you are. He said, do it in the name of Jesus. Well, that would mean when we're driving our car, we're doing that too, aren't we? That would be included in doing all in the name of Jesus. So what does he mean? He's talking about our place, our position. Don't ever take for granted the position that you have with God because it's an important position. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places at the right hand of God. And as a result, that's a place of authority. It's a place of power. We'll start in John chapter 14 in verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse 12. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or believeth on my name, they're one and the same. Can't believe on him without believing in his name. He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father. We've looked at that as uh, belonging to only those who have a special place or a special anointing in, uh, in ministry or some type of position. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this belonging to every believer. And as a result, verse 13, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. We've said it time and time again. This word ask is not the word request. He's not talking about you asking something from him. This word means to call for, require, demand. He's talking about whatever you say in my name, that's what I'll do. 
He's talking about the words that you're, of your mouth being the result of the new position you'll have in him because he's going to the Father. He's talking about a change in authority. And whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand, or speak in my name, literally, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the only qualification he puts on your words. I'll bring to pass every word that you speak so that the Father is glorified in the Son. So that the Father is glorified in the Son. Now, we looked also at Matthew chapter 15, where it talks about how that the maimed were, were made to be whole, and the lame were, uh, were healed and could walk, the blind eyes were opened, and they glorified the God of Israel. So we see in Jesus' life as the pattern, the example that he sets for the words that we now have record of in John chapter 14. He's saying that the works that he did that glorified the Father were healing works and miracle works. So he's talking about supernatural power. It has to be. He's talking about doing the same works that he did. Well, his works were healing and miracles. He's saying that belongs to every believer. Now, why is that such a hard concept for the church to accept? Why is that so difficult? Let's imagine for a minute. Let's just turn back the clock to when Jesus is speaking. Jesus' intent is to create a people through the new birth, through acceptance of his sacrifice in the resurrection. To create a new species of people. If any man be in Christ, he's a new, new uh, creature. One translation says a new species of being. Jesus intends to create a new species of being that does the same works that he does. The same healings that he did. The same miracles that he did. The same exercising the same authority over the natural forces of the earth that he did. That was his intent. How in the world have we gotten to where we are? Well, the answer is very simple, and that is we've rejected his words and believe what we saw and felt instead. I don't believe Jesus is speaking casually. I don't believe he'd be joking around with his disciples on the last night of his time here on the earth. We know that um, uh, John doesn't tell us about it, but if we put together the other uh, gospel accounts, we know that in just a matter of a few minutes, Jesus goes out and prays and sweats great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is not a light-hearted moment. He's not casual about his words. He's speaking very specifically and for a purpose. Whatsoever you shall ask, how for require, demand in my name, literally speak in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you shall ask, same word, call for require, demand anything in my name, I will do it. What's he saying? He's saying your words are going to count because of a new place of authority that I'm creating by going to the Father through my sacrifice and through my resurrection. Your words are going to matter. Notice he's not talking about asking the Father. He'll talk about that and refer to that in a minute. Some verses that we'll look at, but he's saying your words will count. What a place of authority he's intending to create for us and did. Whether we ever accept it or not, whether we ever live up to it or not, what a place of authority Jesus created for us. Chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus said, if you abide in me. It's all the same context that the uh, translators divided into uh, chapters and verses for us for reference sake, but it's all the same time. He's talking about the same thing still. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, he's talking about relationship and walking by faith. Remember, it's all contingent on, it's all hinged upon him going to the Father, the sacrifice that he's going to make on the cross and the resurrection. 
He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. What does it mean for the word of God to abide in you? It means to walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, to believe what God said is true and not what your eyes tell you in this natural realm. Because there are contradicting circumstances here in this physical realm. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask. Same word, call for required demand. Speak what you will. He's not talking about requesting something of the Father. He's not even talking about prayer per se. It works in prayer, certainly. Because when you pray, you speak. He's talking about the use of your authority through your words. You shall ask, call for, require, demand what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, some people will stop right there and say, well, that can't be right, Pastor Mike. Because what if we ask for something outside of the will of God? If the word of God's abiding in you, you won't. Because God's word is his will. If his word's abiding in you, you have knowledge of his will. And if you're abiding in him, if your relationship is right with him, you want to do what he wants. You want to follow the word. Amen. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. Doesn't say a one word about God's will. Because we already know that through the word abiding in us. You shall ask or call for or require or speak what you will and it shall. Might? Shall. And it shall be done unto you. Verse, four, uh, verse 8, notice. He said, herein, in other words, because of this, in this manner, herein is my Father glorified. That you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. I want you to notice two things about this. Notice that God is glorified. Number one. Because you bear fruit. The fruit that he's talking about. Is the words of your mouth coming to pass. Your words coming to pass. That glorifies God. God is glorified when you bear much fruit. And the second thing I want you to see. Is that's the way Jesus' disciples should operate. In other words. We ought to be able to tell. Who are true disciples of Jesus. By the words of their mouths. And the results thereof. Now that may not be good news to a lot of people. A lot of Christians are going to balk at that. I understand. And that's between them and God. But that's what Jesus said. I happen to think that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Notice so. Skip with me over to verse 16. John fifteen sixteen. But you have not chosen me. But I've chosen you and ordained you. That you should go and bring forth fruit. Churches looked at that and said. Well yeah he's talking about the apostles. He's talking about a special place in ministry. Well, if that's true, then he's talking about different fruit in verse 16 than he was talking about in verse 8. Why would he be? He hadn't changed subjects. No, the chosen and ordained position is not a place of ministry. He's talking about I'm going to make a place for you because I'm headed to the Father. He's talking about the place in his family created by Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. He's talking about the new birth. He said, whosoever believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also. Not whoever's called to the ministry. See, we've met, the church world has made every excuse possible to try to say that this doesn't belong to us or this doesn't include us so that we're off the hook. But it does include you. He's talking directly to you and me. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. God's not into temporary results. He's into permanent results. In other words, God's not interested in you having temporary successes in your life. He wants you to walk in full-time victory. How do you do that? Well, notice he's going to tell us through the words of your mouth. And that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand. Speak 
in my name. Or, I'm sorry, whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name. Speak to the Father, literally, in my name. He will give it to you. What's he saying? He's saying your words matter. Your words matter in, in re, uh, regards to what you're going to have in life, the fruit that you're going to bear in your life, and your words are going to matter in regard to what you speak to the Father about. Notice chapter 16, verse 23. Jesus said, and in that day, talking about the day of following the resurrection, our day, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Now, this word ask is different. This word ask means request. Literally, Jesus is saying, in the day of, after my resurrection, following my resurrection, you won't be praying to me. You won't be seeking things from me. You won't be asking, one translation says, you'll ask me no more questions. Well, if we're not going to ask Jesus, which they've, the disciples have been doing for three years straight, then how are they going to communicate? And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask. This is the word ask that we've looked at in the other verses. Call for required demand to speak. Whatsoever you shall speak to the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto, up till now, have you asked, call for required, demanded, or spoken nothing in my name? Think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying, up till now, you have spoken nothing in my name. Well, how'd they do the signs and the wonders in, in, while Jesus was here on the earth? He's talking about a different place. He's talking about a different place. When they used his name here on the earth, remember the two of the disciples came to Jesus and said, uh, John gives us record that two of the disciples came and said, Master, we saw somebody casting out devils in your name and we, he wasn't one of us, so we told him to stop. The name of Jesus works when Jesus was on the earth, even outside the 12 or outside of the 70. It worked for whoever would use it. You didn't have to be one of the special group. And Jesus said, well, don't forbid them. Anybody that's not against us is for us. But Jesus is saying up till this point, you've, you've asked or spoken nothing in my name. What's he saying? Is he saying you've never used my name before? No, it's not what he's saying. They have. That's how they've been able to heal the sick. Jesus had already given his disciples authority to cast out devils and to heal every manner of sickness and disease among the people. Well, how'd they do that? By the use of his name. So what is he saying? He's saying my name will be different after the resurrection. See, before my name was just something that provided power, temporary power while I was here on the earth. But the name of Jesus is about a relationship with God. It's about an open door to heaven. And you haven't experienced that yet. Up till now you have asked, call for required or spoken nothing in my name. Ask, call for required demand. Speak, in other words, and you shall receive. Notice this phrase, that your joy may be full. Now, we've referred to this before, but I think it's important to do it again and again and again and again, to be honest with you. And that is, can you imagine anything in your life? Think, think about your situation, your circumstances. Is there anything, any aspect of your life where your joy could not be made full by a display of the power of God? That fixes all my problems. Anything that I'm tempted to worry about, the display of God's power fixes that instantly. How about you? I wonder what Jesus is talking about then. I wonder if Jesus knows what it means for, his, for somebody's joy to be made full. Of course he does. 
He knows exactly what he's saying. He's saying, use your words. Exercise the authority. This new element of authority that I'm giving to you because I'm going to my father and going to be raised from the dead. Use this new element of authority that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Now let's talk about authority for a minute. Because the, 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 however you want to look at this, we have to admit any, any sane or, or reasonable or rational person would have to agree that Jesus is talking about a new place of authority for his disciples because he's going to his father. Because of the, the work he's going to do on the cross and because of the resurrection, right? I mean, that, that has to be the, the, the thing that Jesus is talking about. Whether we ever live up to it or not, that's what Jesus is talking about. Well, what is this new place of authority? Well, we know in Genesis chapter 1, we've looked at that time and time again. You can turn back there if you want to. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, after God created the earth by speaking words, then he said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. The, the word likeness in the Hebrew literally means the, the exact same in, uh, duplication in kind. A duplication in, in kind, in other words, exactly like God. Man was made as close to God as God could make him. I don't know too much about how God works in that regard and creative works, but I'm pretty well convinced that God could make something pretty close to him because he's God. So God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion. The purpose for making man as, as close to as an exact replication of himself as possible is so that man could have dominion or will substitute the word authority. Authority is easier to talk about than dominion. But they both mean the same thing. So that man could have authority over all the works of his hands. Over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over everything that creeps on the earth. Over all the work of God's hands. Now the angels are related uh, uh, or at the time, the point in time of creation of man. In Psalm 8, the angels, the Bible tells us, are astonished. Now we think of the angels being higher than God or higher than man between man and God. But they're not. Because the angels are astonished at this. The angels who are spirit beings and, and powerful to a great degree. I'm not sure what that degree is. But we certainly know that they have greater power than man in certain respects from what the Bible tells us. But the angels looked at, at this situation and they said, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? In other words, why are you making, God, why are you making man such a special creature? And then it goes on to say, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. King James says angels, but it's literally the word Elohim. The word Elohim is the, the word that stands for God, the Trinity. Thou hast made him a little lower than yourself. Not lower than the angels, lower than God, higher than the angels. The Bible says that man will judge the angels. We can't be lower than them if we're going to judge them in the future. Now, I know this doesn't fit into the church's idea of man being a worm and uh, unrighteousness says it's filthy rags and all that kind of stuff but that's what the Bible says the Bible which is the word of God gives us more information than, than man's mind is able to, to ascertain or could develop or, or imagine so I'm inclined to go with what God said how about you so he says what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him thou hast made him a little lower than the angels Literally a little lower than yourself. A little lower than Elohim. You've crowned him with loving kindness and tender mercies. You've given him dominion over all the works of your hands. The angels are astonished. So whatever existed 
from the beginning when God created the heaven and the earth and when God recreates the earth that we know that he puts man in, whatever existed during that time was not man because the angels are astonished when God creates man. What are you doing? God, what are you doing? You're giving him authority. You're giving him dominion on the earth. They've got to remember the angels have just lived through I don't know how long ago or how, how uh, many years would precede that or what kind of time was involved. But the angels have already experienced Satan's rebellion against God. And Satan took a third of the angels with him. Now, Satan was one who had authority. And apparently the authority of the angels changed at the point of the rebellion. Because now the Bible says the angels are sealed. In other words, they don't have a choice. They've already made their choice. They picked their sides. Two-thirds of them picked the right side. One-third of them are not real happy with their decision. I guess that would be the most charitable way we could say it. And they're waiting for the end and the destruction of, uh, of Satan at the end as well as their own. So the angel's situation changed. So when the angels look at God making man and giving him authority over all the works of his hands, they're saying, wait a minute, haven't we done this before? With a lower creature, a lower class of being, certainly. But now you've made something that's higher than the angels, close to you, as close to you as you could possibly make. And now you're giving him authority. Don't you realize you're rolling the dice on man again, God? So where was the authority? The authority was in the hands of man. Now God tells Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden of Eden. Everything else is yours. But don't eat of that one because, not because it's not... Uh, not because God's trying to keep something from them. He's trying to keep them out of trouble. But he had to, have them, had to give them a choice. I've often wondered, or I've heard other people wonder, or used to wonder, why did God make this tree if he didn't want them to eat of it? Because man had to have a choice. If man did not have the ability to fall, then he couldn't be serving God uh, completely voluntarily. So God instructs him what to do and what not to do. He said, don't eat of the tree. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, he's not talking about physical death because they didn't die the day, they didn't die physically the day that they ate thereof. Well, what died? They died spiritually. They were separated from God. The law of sin and death began to rule and reign on the earth. Satan became what Second Corinthians 4, 4 says is the God of this world. The God of this world. But you know, the, the interesting thing about this, folks, and I, I've been guilty about this, and I, I apologize for this and, and what you've heard me say in times past. I've given the devil a lot more credit for being the God of this world than he should have. I've given him a lot more of a, uh, in my thinking, a lot bigger place of, of authority and a lot more power than what he really has. One of the things, and we've touched on this briefly, but one of the things about the book of Job that just fascinates me, there's not many things about Job that does fascinate, fascinate me. I'm certainly not fascinated by the way the church misinterprets it. But one of the things about the book of Job that fascinates me is that Satan did not seem to know the limits of his authority. See, after Adam fell, God didn't have a conference and say, okay, Mr. Devil, now you're in charge. And here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. So how's he going to find out? He's going to find out through the use of this newfound authority. But what authority did he have? Well, we know there was a curse that came upon the earth. We know that the curse of, of, of sin and death coming upon the earth or what Paul calls the law of sin and death means that the earth is going to produce for Adam now only by the sweat of his brow. 
We know there's a curse upon the childbirth. That now childbirth has changed. There's going to be labor involved. The word translated pain in the, in the King James is not pain. It's really labor. It's work. It's effort. I haven't had a kid, so I uh, haven't given birth, so I might need to yield to some others on that. The particulars about that. But the word itself does not mean pain. And then the Bible says that there was a curse that came upon the serpent. And as a type of the devil, the instrument that the devil used to attack God's creation. God prophesies and speaks. And God's words always come to pass. That there would come one that would bruise his head. Stomp on the devil's head, literally. Even though his heel would be bruised. And it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the crucifixion. It's talking about the resurrection. So what happened? Well, even if you look at the book of Job, you'll find out that the devil used two things. He had authority over two things. It talks about the camels and the oxen of Job being taken. One by the Sabaeans. I think the oxen were taken by the Sabaeans. And the servants in the field were killed. And the um, Chaldeans came and killed the, uh, the servants that were taking care of the camels. And took all those stuff, took took Job's goods or his animals away. The other thing that it says is that the sheep were watering and the fire of God fell. Now what is that? It's talking about a lightning strike when they were there at the water trough or the watering hole of the pond or whatever it was. And killed both the servants that were there taking care of them and the sheep themselves. Then the last thing that it says is that when the, the... Children of Job, the sons of Job, were in the house. There was a great wind that came and caused the house to fall. So there's two elements that Satan used. Two things that Satan had authority of. One was over people. Well, we know that to be true. Satan influences people for for evil. That's still taking place in the earth today. That's no big deal. That's no big revelation. But the other thing that it tells us that he used was weather. Now, but even in that, stop and think about it. What is Satan's purpose? Satan's purpose is not to see how long he can make this stretch out on the earth. Satan's purpose is to destroy the man that God created to have authority over him. So if Satan could destroy the earth in one moment of time, he would do it. Please understand that. All the things that Satan threatens you about going to do what he's going to do to you if he could do it he'd do it already and even in Jesus case we see the great storm of wind come up when Jesus was asleep in the back part of the ship and the disciples get all concerned about that what happened well certainly that was a work of the enemy trying to hinder Jesus from the work of God trying to distract him from the things that he's sent to the earth to do so what did Jesus do he speaks to the wind and he calms it down calms the seas and everything gets quiet so where's Satan's authority? If the two things that we see that Satan has authority over and the things that make Satan the god of this world is his influence over people and, the, and his authority over the, the elements of the earth or the weather and so forth, but Jesus exercised authority over that, how is it that Satan can be the god of this world? Satan being the god of this world, and, and this is what I want you to see, folks. Satan being the god of this world does not mean he has ultimate authority. Man never lost his authority. Man never lost his authority. He lost his ability for his mouth to speak only good. 
He lost his ability to gain information only from God and not from the physical realm. But man never lost his authority. And that's what Jesus here on the earth is a picture of. Jesus on the earth was a man who was without sin in Adam's condition, literally. A man born of a virgin without sin who exercised authority according to the law of Moses. That same law could be exercised by any man or woman on the earth with the same or similar results. Man never lost his authority. So what is Jesus restoring authority in? If man never lost his authority. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7. I want you to remind you of something here. Have I piqued your interest at least? Folks, I'm going to have to tell off on myself a little bit here, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. But I'm seeing things in the Word that I've never seen before, and it's stuff about stuff that I thought I knew. And I'm embarrassed that I never saw it before. I'm not going to go into detail about what I'm seeing because I'm not going to enhance my embarrassment. But I'm reminded, and I, I take comfort in this, I'm reminded that when Brother Hagin said that he began to pray the prayers in Ephesians 1 and 3 over himself that the eyes of his understanding would be enlightened. He said his eyes started being opened to some things and he said to his wife, my goodness, what in the world have I been preaching? So I take comfort that I'm not the only one in that boat. But notice chapter 7 of Matthew. Jesus tells about the person that builds his house on the rock as opposed to the person that builds his house on the sand. And those verses 28 and 29, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now, what is his doctrine? What doctrine or teaching has he been sharing with them? Well, he just told them that man makes the choice about whether he's going to stand or fall when the storms of life come. And the, the, the determining factor for success or victory against the storms of life have to do with his attitude And his relationship with the word of God. Now what word of God did they have? All they had was the law of Moses. They didn't have what you have. They didn't know what you know. But Jesus is saying. That man could experience victory. By simply applying himself. To live by the word. The law of Moses. The law and the prophets. The Old Testament commands of God. Well how is that possible if man had lost his authority. If man had lost his authority, it ended up to the devil and or God as to whether or not he succeeds or fails. And here's the mistake the church makes today. The church says that it's up to God. God's sovereign. He's the one that decides whether or not man wins or loses. He's the one that decides whether man lives or dies. Yet Jesus is teaching that man has authority. Even under the old covenant, he's saying that man has authority. And that has to be true, folks, because we've read in Deuteronomy chapter 30 where where, uh, God said in the Old Testament, through Moses, he said, I set before you this day life and blessing, death and curses. Choose life. If man doesn't have authority, how does he choose? See, if Satan being the God of this world, and he was at the time those words were spoken, if Satan was the God of this world, and he's the one that decides whether man wins or loses, he's the one that decides whether man succeeds or fails, if he's the one that decides because of his great power here on the earth, 
then how does man have a choice? Is this making any sense to you at all? Notice it says the people were astonished at Jesus' doctrine. They were not astonished at him. They were astonished at his teaching. That's what doctrine means. It means teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? It's going to explain why. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Please notice the word one. If you're looking in the King James along with me, the word one is in italics. That means the translators added it. Why? Because they thought Jesus was talking about himself and showing his own authority. And that's not what it says. He taught them as having authority. Let me define these words for you. As means how or the manner to. Having means to hold. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching for he taught them how or the manner to hold authority and not as the scribes. What are the scribes teaching? Scribes are teaching that it's up to God. You can't do anything about it. Everything is up to him. God's sovereign. Scribes teaching the sovereignty of God. Might be like this or it might be like that because we can never tell. And the fact that it says that Jesus taught them about authority. And that's what they were amazed at. He taught them about authority. So what is Jesus telling us? Well, he's telling us through John 14, 15, and 16. John relates to us that Jesus is saying in the day of the resurrection, the church age, you're going to have a different place, and that place will be a place of authority. It'll be a place of of authority in my name because of your relationship with God through me, because you're in Christ, literally in my name. You're going to have a place of authority. Now, what is that going to to result in? Turn with me over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Notice what Jesus says when he appears to his disciples. Let's just start reading in verse 16. This is following the resurrection. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Get that. They're looking at him, but some are still doubting. See, the idea that if, oh, if we can only see it with our natural eye, then we'd believe. It's not always true, folks. And Jesus came, verse 18, and spoken to them, saying, All power, the word power is the word authority, literally. doesn't mean ability. It means delegated authority. All power or authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. What's he saying? I'll take care of things in heaven. You take care of things on the earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. That's what's known in the church world as the Great Commission. Can I ask you a question? You just read the verses. How do we get from that that Jesus is saying, go get people saved? How does the church come up with the idea that the Great Commission is to go get people saved? Is that what he said? Let's read it again. We'll go slow this time. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. So whatever he's telling them to do, he's telling them to do in authority. Right? 
Otherwise, why tell them about what's Jesus saying? I've got authority. You don't. Things are good for me, but it's going to be bad for you. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I don't think so. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, so I'm sending you into the earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. The word teach means make disciples of. Big difference in making disciples and getting somebody saved. Even in Jesus' day, in John chapter 8, it says, Jesus said to those that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Even in Jesus' day, there was a big difference in believers and disciples. I wonder if that's still true. Seems to be. Go ye therefore and make disciples or teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Notice he did not say preaching the gospel so that they can have their sins forgiven. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, if Matthew's gospel is the only thing we've got, what has he commanded them? He just appears to him. He's just been raised from the dead. He appears to, to uh, verse in, uh, tells about the sepulcher being found empty. Verse 9, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. So there are things that happen. Between the time that Jesus says this and when he says goodbye to them and is taken up into heaven by the end of the chapter. So why does Matthew leave out what Jesus commanded them if, if the great commission, the commission that the church is supposed to follow even in our day is to teach all nations whatsoever things, to observe whatsoever things he's commanded them. What is that about? Well, the church hadn't known by and large and, and this is my opinion you can disagree with it if you want to everybody has the right to be wrong but the church by and large has said well since we don't know we'll say that's just preaching the gospel and getting people saved well then why do you say make disciples jesus spent three years with some people and they never did become disciples Why is he saying make disciples? You want to know what Jesus commanded them? He's not saying go tell the people what I just shared with you. He's not saying, okay, now these three years have just been a warm-up. They were good times, but now there's one and only one message there is, and that is Jesus is raised from the dead, so get saved. Then why is the church boiled it down to that? Why is the church world boiled everything down to get saved? Well, then what? John tells us that Jesus is saying, because you get saved is a place of authority. Well, why didn't the church world teach that? I think these are legitimate questions, folks. What did Jesus command them? Turn back with me to chapter 9 of Mark of Matthew's gospel. We just finished in chapter 7. Where they were astonished at Jesus teaching about authority. 
teaching that man still had authority. Man makes the choice. Now notice in chapter 9, I want you to get the context. It's the end of the chapter that I want to get to, but I want to kind of run through the chapter real quick, and I won't read verses for the sake of time. But I want you to see certain things. It starts off in the first part of the chapter through about the 8th verse, and it says that Jesus heals a man that was sick of the palsy. Then it says that he calls Matthew in chapter uh, verse 9, uh, verse through verse 13. And then he asks, answers a question about fasting in verses 15, 14 through 17. Then it says that the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' daughter are healed, verses 18 through 26. Then he heals two blind men, Matthew 9, 27 through 31. Then he heals a man that's unable to speak in verses 32 through 34. And now I want you to get to verse 35. That's the context of what Jesus says and does in verse 35. Are you getting the picture? Jesus is exercising authority over the devil's power, over sickness and disease and so forth. Where he gets to verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. I wonder what Jesus taught. Well, in chapter 7, they were astonished because of his teaching on authority. I wonder if Jesus taught that at other places he went. If he's not teaching that man has authority, then what is he teaching? And maybe a better question is, why is Jesus teaching that man has authority? Because Jesus' whole purpose is to let them know it's not up to God about what you have in life. It's not up to the devil about what you have in life. It's up to you about what you have in life. Man, I wish the church world would get a hold of that concept. The devil's not the one that has authority. The devil's not the one that has power in your life. Oh, sure, he can bring temptation. Sure, he can bring attacks. But he's not the one that decides how things are going to go for you. And if that were the case when Jesus was here on the earth, when they were operating under the law of Moses, how much more true is it now when Jesus says we have a new place of authority because of our place in him? Then why in the world does the church world put up with so much work of the devil in their lives? And why does the church world sit back and say, well, I don't understand what's happening, but God must have a purpose. It's not up to God and it's not up to the devil. It's up to you. Jesus said the place of authority that we have in his name is whatever you say will be. Whatever you speak to the Father in his name will be. You have authority. Jesus went about all their cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. One translation says every manner of sickness and disease. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Well, Pastor Mike, I thought we were talking about what Jesus commanded his disciples. Chapter 10. Jesus picks the 12 apostles. Verse 1. And he gave them power. Literally the word authority. He gave them authority against unclean spirits. To cast them out. And to heal all manner of sickness. And all manner of disease. Isn't that what the Bible just said in verse 35. That Jesus had. Matthew 9.35 just said. Jesus healed every sickness and disease. Literally every manner of sickness and disease. Now he gives them authority to cast out devils. He gives them authority over all the power of the devil in order to cast them out. 
and to heal every manner of sickness and disease. Now, let's stop right here before we go any further. Let's stop right here and ask a question. Why did Jesus do that? Well, he just explained that there's more people to get to than he can get to on his own. So he's sending out more people to do the same work that he did. Can anybody argue with that? Isn't that clear? So he gives them power and authority over the devil and over all manner of sickness and disease. Skip with me down to verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them. Everybody say commanded. So if Jesus is saying in chapter 28 verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Literally teach all nations. Make disciples of them. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. He's not saying the last three years don't count. He's saying the stuff that I commanded you before, now use in a greater authority. A greater place. Now you've got a position. You don't have temporary authority. You have permanent authority because you have a place in me. I've opened the door to heaven, the family of God, for you. Can we come up to any, with any other conclusion? That seems so simple to me. It's amazing to me how the church has stumbled over it. It's almost like God really meant what he said. Almost. No, God did mean what he said, folks. So he said, go into, Jesus commanded them saying, go into the way of the, go, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself. Let me slow down. Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now what's changed? What's changed is who the gospel is for. Now the gospel is not just for the, for the Israel when it was in this point in time of Jesus' ministry. Not even throughout the whole of Jesus' ministry was that the case. About halfway through Jesus' time here on the earth, Jesus left the Jews because they rejected him and went under the Gentile cities or the outskirts of Judea. But at this point in time when Jesus sends his disciples forth, the gospel is only for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. Well, what's changed? What's changed is not what belongs to the Gentiles. What's changed is now that it's available to them too. In other words, the gospel hasn't changed just who it's available for. I'm not sure if I said that very well, but I hope you get the meaning. At that point in time in Matthew chapter 10, the gospel was only for the Jews. Now it's for everybody. But it's not a different gospel. So in other words, it's a matter of timing, not substance. Now it belongs to everybody. So what's the commandment? Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we've already identified in this series that the kingdom of heaven is not with outward observation. Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. Jesus said the kingdom of God is not with outward observation or outward show. In other words, you can't see the kingdom of God with your natural eye. For the kingdom of God is within. Now what does the kingdom of God entail? Well, he's just going to say, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's here for you. Well, how do we know it's here? He said, verse 8, heal the sick. That must be part of the kingdom of heaven. Cleanse the lepers. That must be part of the kingdom of heaven. Raise the dead. That must be part of the kingdom of heaven, too. Cast out devils. That must be part of the kingdom of heaven. And then notice what he says, freely have you received, freely give. Now, please notice this statement. 
Jesus is saying, here's what I'm commanding you to do. Go and preach saying, this is part of the kingdom of heaven. So heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out devils. And tell, and, and know this, freely you receive, freely you give. In other words, he's saying, don't hold back from somebody because you might not happen to like them. The kingdom of heaven, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, and casting out devils, belongs to everybody. Whether you might think so or not. Don't discriminate in who you minister to. Now, what is the church world? And folks, I think we're guilty of this in a lot of ways. We seem to put this burden on people. And, and it's not intentional. At least it's not on my part. But the net effect is oftentimes this burden is placed upon people that you've got to believe just right. There is this thin, thin line that you have to walk. And I mean, it's just a tiptoe walk that's called faith. And if you do it just right, then you'll receive. But there's not many that do it just right. So maybe you shouldn't even expect to. Because it's not this wide open door. It's not an easy thing. It's tough. I mean, even the Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. And so there's this this implication, if not outright preaching or teaching, that's left with people that it's hard to receive from God. But Jesus says, it didn't cost you anything. I'm giving you the authority to heal the sick and cast out devils and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers. It didn't cost you anything, so don't make it cost anybody else anything. Don't put a burden on them. Now, folks, this is Jesus' attitude, and Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the way God wants it to work. may not be the way the church wants it to work. It sure wasn't the way the religious people of his day wanted it to work. They got upset because Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. John chapter 5, Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And the Jews got all upset because Jesus did this on the Sabbath day. You remember what Jesus said? He said, my father worketh hitherto and so do I. In other words, God's attitude is any day is good for healing. No matter what your religious tradition is. Luke chapter 13 tells us about the woman that was bowed over and had been that way for 18 years. Jesus sees her in the synagogue and says, woman, thou art loose from thine infirmities. And the Jews went nuts. There are six days in which a man could come to be healed. Let him come one of those days and not on the Sabbath day. What has that idiot done to help her? She's been that way for 18 years. Has he ever lifted a finger to do anything for her? No. His job is to criticize It's so good that God has set certain people in the church for that purpose, isn't it? Because the rest of us aren't smart enough to find the problems for ourselves. No. You got to have people with religious degrees to find the problems. And Jesus said, you hypocrite. He says, does not each one of you on the Sabbath day lift his ox or his, loose his ox or his ass from the stall and take him away to water? You'll take care of your animals better than you'll take care of people. 
And then he said this, and ought not this woman, notice Jesus' attitude toward healing. Ought not this woman, number one, being a daughter of Abraham, number two, whom Satan is bound low these 18 years, be loosed from the bond, this bond on the Sabbath day. She's got a right to healing because she, it belongs to her. She's a daughter of Abraham. And number two, because I'm here to destroy the works of the devil. That seemed to be good enough reason for God. Jesus didn't stop and turn her over and examine her from every angle and say, I don't know. Do you have enough faith? I'd really like to do it, but you said not too long ago the wrong word. This is Jesus' attitude. Freely you've received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. Then he gives them some more instruction. He says in verse 9, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. In other words, don't worry about the money. I'll take care of that. Nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, staves, for the workman is worthy of his hire. Into whatsoever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and thereby abide until you go thence. In other words, don't go from house to house trying to get a better place. And when you come into a house, salute it. And if, it, if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. Folks, you need to realize something. Even under the old covenant, Jesus said, the spirit of God is on you. He's saying your peace. In other words, the spirit that you carry around with you just because they, for them, because they were commissioned by Jesus to do a certain work. For you, because you're part of the family of God, your peace follows you you can let that rest on places that you want it to and refuse it to rest on places you don't verse 14 and what whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city shake off the dust of your feet Verily I say unto you, it's more tolerable for that land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the city, for that city. Now, the rest of the chapter, verses 16 through 25, is about persecution. People are going to attack you. Verses 26 through 33 is don't be afraid of them. In other words, put your attention on doing the things of God instead of the people that are trying to, to harm you. Verse 34 through thir- verse 39 is don't think that I'm come to bring peace or send peace, but to bring a sword. Your message is going to divide people. You're not there to make everybody feel good because not everybody's going to feel good about what you're saying and doing. Verses 40 through 42, he talks about rewards. He that receiveth me, he that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me, and so forth. Now that ends chapter 10. Notice chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples. What is that telling us? It's telling us all about chapter 10 being the command of Jesus. Now, is that the only thing Jesus commanded them to do? No. Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. He talks about keeping the things of God first place in their lives. He talks about attending to the word in a number of places. There are a lot of other places in scriptures that we could take and pick out and say this is part of the things that Jesus commanded. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world, teach all nations to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. 
can we take this out of or exclude this from the commands that Jesus has given them? If they're left, when Jesus leaves, if they're left looking at each other, scratching their heads, saying, now, wait a minute, what are we supposed to teach? Well, we can certainly teach that Jesus is raised from the dead. Man, everybody's going to want to know that. But, but that's not what he said. He said, to teach all nations whatsoever I've commanded you. What are we supposed to teach? Well, remember when he was here on the earth and he gave us authority over, to, over all manner of sickness and disease and to cast out devils. He told us to go and preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You remember that Jesus told us too that there would be some that would be still alive here on the earth when he came in his kingdom. Man, that's here. This is what he was talking about. If the kingdom of heaven was available to him and near at hand then, what is the kingdom of heaven now? It's the power to heal the sick and cast out devils. See, folks, what I'm trying to get across to you is very simply this. When the church starts teaching that we have authority over evil spirits to cast out devils, to dislodge the work of the enemy, and to heal sickness and disease, we won't have to try to get people saved. Because the sick will come to be healed. The oppressed will come to be set free. And when they find out that Jesus heals and sets people free, they'll want to serve him. Now let me prove this to you. Let me, let me conclude and, and, uh, uh, and, and show you this. Turn with me over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer. And John's the only one that gives us record of this. Now, I'm not sure that this is the prayer. I don't think it is, to be honest with you, that this is the prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know how John would know that because Jesus separated himself from where the disciples were. So this seems to be the prayer he prayed before he left the upper room, or the, not the upper room, but the, uh, the Last Supper is what I'm trying to say, before he left the Last Supper and went into the Garden of Gethsemane. But notice some things, and, and again, for the sake of time, we won't read the whole thing. The, the whole prayer is fantastic. But for the sake of time, we won't read the whole thing because I know I'm out of time. But notice that Jesus says, um, we'll start in verse 1. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Notice Jesus didn't say eternal life is getting to heaven. Jesus said eternal life is a relationship with God through him. Well, you have that now, don't you? That means you have eternal life now. If you're waiting to get to heaven for something, you're backing up. You've got something now. Notice verse, uh, verse 5. And now, Father... Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Please notice verse 5. Jesus is praying that he would get back the glory that he laid aside in Philippians chapter 2 tells us. That he laid aside his heavenly power and glory to come to the earth and be as a man. Now Jesus is praying because I'm coming back to you, Father. I want what I had before I laid it down. Give me that glory back. Now, it's not up to Jesus to take it back because he's laid it down. That means he set himself apart from it. He set it aside. It's not his anymore. He gave it back to the Father. And now he's saying, since I'm coming back to you, I want that back. Now, that's not the glory that he had while he was here on the earth. 
He laid that aside in order to come to the earth to be born as a man and operate as a man, as a human being. Are you with me? He's talking about two different kinds of glory. He did have a glory here on the earth. That was the glory that he had because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to fulfill the plan of God here. That was a part of the glory or the authority that he delegated to the disciples to give them power over the devil and to cast out evil, uh, to cast out, uh, to heal sickness and disease. Excuse me, I get ahead of myself when I get, and I get tongue-tied when I do. Do you understand what he's saying? Two different times of glory. He operated with the glory here on the earth that he received from the Father when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. That's when the Holy Ghost came on him and he immediately began to preach, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. I want to ask you a question. The church world thinks Jesus operated on the earth because he was the Son of God. Then who can anoint God? If Jesus had his heavenly power and glory when he was here on the earth already, what does he need to be anointed for? What's the purpose for that? And how in the world would the Bible tell us in Luke 4 that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee? Why wouldn't he have the power of the Spirit all along if he's the Son of God and operating as the Son of God? Folks, this is so simple, but it's so important for you to get. Jesus did not operate here on the earth as the Son of God. He laid aside his Son of God glory to come to the earth to, be, to operate as a man. If he didn't operate as a man and not the Son of God, then he wasn't a sacrifice for mankind. He had to be a man to be a worthy sacrifice for mankind. A man had to pay the price for man's sins. God couldn't do that. Or the Son of God operating as the Son of God couldn't do that. So Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. He got a different glory here on the earth to operate and fulfill the plan of God while he was here during his three-year ministry. But now he's saying, Father, I want back what I had in the beginning. Can you see that? Keep that in mind. He's going to refer back to it. Uh, verse, um, verse 9. I pray for them, talking about the disciples, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. In other words, he's saying, you and I are the same. That's what the Jews wanted to kill him for, because he called God his father. To Jesus, that meant everything I've got is yours, and everything you've got is mine. Keep that in mind, because he's going to say the same thing about you. Verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in my name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Is that not exactly what Jesus said about using his name and your words coming to pass? That your joy may be full. Notice Jesus said how it works. I speak these things in the world so that they can have my joy fulfilled in them. In other words, it's the use of the name of Jesus that brings the power of God to fulfill your joy. Skip down with me. Uh, well, no, no, no. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. I have given them my word, and the world has hated them, 
because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but thou should keep them from the evil. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. How does that work? Jesus is praying. At this point, he's only praying for the disciples. You'll find out that he says in a minute, I'm not just praying for the disciples, but the same prayers for everybody that will believe on me because of them. That means you. So this is a prayer that's being prayed on your behalf or for your benefit. How is he going to keep us from the evil? Different translations say it different ways. Keep them from the evil one, protect them or guard them from the evil or the evil one and so forth. But how in the world does it work? If Jesus' prayers were answered and his prayers were always answered, his words always came to pass, how is it that you and I are kept from the evil or the evil one? Two things. The relationship that we have with God in the name of Jesus and the use of his word. Obviously, Jesus is not praying that the devil would be done away with once and for all so that you and I would never have any trouble with him. If that's what Jesus prayed, somehow the devil didn't get the memo concerning me. No, he gave you the power to overcome him. To keep you from the evil means the name and his word. The Bible says they overcame him. Speaking to the people of God, they overcame the evil one. By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Relationship and the use of his word. Are you with me? Let us keep reading. They are not, verse 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. That means the world has no more, no more or no greater hold on you. The law of sin and death, the curse that's upon the earth, the, the operation of Satan as the God of this world has no more hold on you than it had on Jesus. Verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Here's how you separate them from the world. Here's how you separate yourself from the world. Thy word is truth. It's the use of the word that makes the difference. Isn't that the same thing Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 about the person that's going to fail or stand through the storms of life? Through the use of his word. Folks, nothing has changed. Only our place with God. Verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world. Please notice verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. Now stop right there. Please don't run over that one too quick. As, I have, as you have sent me into the world, I send them into the world. As means in the same manner, for the same purpose, in the same way. Jesus is saying, I'm sending them. Now, at this point, he hadn't yet included everybody else. He's talking about the disciples or the apostles. He's saying, I'm sending them just like you sent me. How was Jesus sent? 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was sent to the earth for one purpose, and that was to destroy the works of the devil. The destruction of the devil's works included salvation for us. He destroyed the devil's works where sin and death was concerned. He destroyed the devil's works where evil spirit oppression was concerned. He destroyed the devil's works where sickness was concerned. He destroyed the devil's works in every aspect. And he's saying, just like you sent me to the earth, I'm sending them into the earth. 
In other words, you're sent to do exactly the same thing. If Well, by the time he includes you in this prayer, we're sent to do exactly the same thing that Jesus was sent to the earth. As you have sent me in the same way, same manner, same purpose, as you sent me into the earth, the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctified myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. He's talking about his sacrifice there. Neither pray I for these alone. Now he's going to include you. I'm not just praying for the apostles, for the 12 or the 11. Jesus is already gone. I'm not just praying for those that will be apostles, but also for those who shall believe on me through their word. How many of you got saved because of what the Bible says? Then this is you. Peter said, Peter wrote to the church and said, we're saved or born again by the incorruptible seed of God's word. Every one of us, every person that's been saved in our generation and every generation since them has been saved because of the word of the apostles, because the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So he's including you now in this prayer, even as he sent Jesus into the world the father sent Jesus into the world he's sending you into the world and not just the 11 but you too and me too that they all may be one as you father are in me and I am in thee how are we supposed to be one with God just like God was one with Jesus Jesus ever have a uh, um, uh, did Jesus ever tell the disciples boy I'm, I'm having a rough day God's not hearing my prayers Jesus ever say to the disciples, man, I just feel so far away from God. Jesus ever say, boys, clear the calendar. I just don't have it today. Never. Never. Jesus said, standing before Lazarus' tomb, he said, Father, I thank you that you hear me always. Always means always, doesn't it? Neither pray I, or I'm sorry, verse 21 again, that they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I am then in, in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. How did the world believe that Jesus was sent from the Father? Remember John chapter 3? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Master, we know that you've come from God because nobody can do the miracles that you're doing. Except God just be with him. Do you remember Matthew chapter uh, 11? Jesus says, he pronounces a curse on two cities. He said, woe unto thee, Chorazin and Bethsaida. For if the works that were done in you had been done in the cities of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes a long time ago. What is Jesus saying that is the key in most cases, not every case, Chorazin and Bethsaida were examples of the exception. But in most cases, what is going to be the key to cities turning and repenting? First of all, let me ask this. Does God want cities to turn and repent? It's pretty obvious. It's the will of God for everybody to be saved. What is it, therefore, that's going to cause cities to turn and repent? Seeing mighty works and signs and miracles and healings and so forth being done. That's what caused people to know that God had sent Jesus when he was here on the earth. Right? So notice that's the context that Jesus is talking now. Jesus said that they all may be one. Verse 21. 
as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they also may be one in us and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. How are we going to do the same things? How are the same works going to be done that Jesus did? Verse 22. And the glory. Remember we talked about that earlier. There are two types of glory. Jesus had one glory on the earth. He had another glory from the beginning with the Father. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory to come to the earth and be a man. Then he was anointed or given a glory or an anointing by the Holy Ghost when he was baptized of John in the Jordan River. And that's the anointing that he operated in or the glory that he operated in when he was here on the earth. That's not the glory Jesus has now. When Jesus said to his disciples, all power or authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Do you know what that means? That means I've got back what I had in the beginning. Just like he prayed. So verse 22, he's talking about for us and the glory which thou gavest me. When he was anointed by John or anointed of the Holy Ghost, baptized by John in the Jordan River. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. That they may be one even as we are one. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Father, because I'm on my way to you, I won't need the, the glory that I had here on the earth anymore. So I'm giving that glory to them. So that the world will know that, they, that you sent them or that I sent them just like you sent me. Just like they recognized that I was sent from the Father because of the works that I did here on the earth. Now I'm giving them the same anointing to do the same works. So that everybody will know that I'm in them and you're in us. Is it making a little bit bit more sense why Jesus said the last night that he was with his disciples. Whatsoever you shall call for, require, demand or speak in my name. I will do it. That's the anointing that's been given to the church. That's the anointing that you have. You've been given the same commands. You've been sent to do the same work. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out devils. And isn't that what John, what uh, Mark 16 says? When Jesus appeared to the disciples, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They should take up serpents, meaning dislodge the power of the devil. doesn't have anything to do with handling snakes. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, and they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Authority over the devil, power over sickness. That's the authority the church has now. That's the authority that every believer has now. Well, Pastor Mike, I can hear the question being asked in the rusty gears of your minds. If that's the authority the church has, why aren't we doing it? Because we haven't been fully persuaded yet. How do you become fully persuaded? You start saying what the Bible says is yours. And folks, that's where I'm coming to. I don't claim to be there yet. But that's where I'm coming to. Let me close with this. You remember, um, well, you probably don't remember, but I, I may have referred to it earlier in this series. There's a, there's a tremendous, tremendous book by E.W. Kenyon. And I know some people have a problem with E.W. Kenyon. But anybody that has a problem with E.W. Kenyon doesn't know the Lord. Doesn't mean they're not saved, but they don't know Jesus. Because that book is all about the preciousness and the wonder of Jesus and the power in his name. You can't read that book with a pure heart 
and not recognize that the author of that book loved the Lord with all of his heart. Anyway, there's a book by the name of, uh, the wonderful name of Jesus, E.W. Kenyon. And Dr. Kenyon said this. He said, there have been times where some of us, a few, a rare number, have stepped over into the power of God for short spurts of time. And in t- any time that has happened, people have treated those men, those individuals, like they were gods themselves. But he said this. He said, but the time is coming where men will step over into that place and abide there. And he said, and then he went further and said this, and then we'll see the return of the Lord. There, there have been all kinds of things that have been said. Smith Wigglesworth, in the last years of his life, prophesied that uh, of certain moves of God. He said uh, from the time that he died, and he died in 1947, I think, something like that. Uh, he said that after his life was over, after he was gone, he said there would be a revival of the Spirit. And that was a charismatic revival that began in the 60s. He said after that there would be a revival of the Word. That was the, the teaching of the Word. There was a real movement of God in the teaching of the world in the, uh, mostly in the, the 80s. Maybe the latter part of the 70s and mostly the 80s. And he said, and after that, there would come a revival that would combine both the spirit and the word. He said, that'll bring Jesus back. I believe that. I, I've, I've heard things like that. What Dr. Kenyon said and what Smith Wigglesworth said. And there have been some other things that I could add to it, I guess, too. But, but there are certain things. There are certain prophecies that I hear people say and people relate. And I just think, I mean, it doesn't even dent me. It's like, uh, you got to be kidding. I mean, for goodness sakes. It seems to me that the prophecy level is such a low level in the church nowadays, it's just ridiculous. Now, I realize I've come from a, a place that is kind of a disadvantage in, in that I was around Brother Hagin, who was the foremost prophet of the land for many, many years. And Brother Hagin guarded his words. He, he didn't prophesy stuff that, that he wanted or, or that he thought and stuff like that. But for goodness sakes, I mean, for people to, to prophesy politics nowadays and say it's the word of the Lord... Do we really need a word of the Lord saying that if we don't enforce our borders, then our enemies will come across? I mean, does it really take God to tell us that? Seriously? So I, I get kind of frustrated with some of the, the prophecies, the so-called prophecy stuff nowadays. But there are certain things that have been said over the years that I've been made aware of and, and come, to, come to hear or become aware of. And there there are a few things that just stab directly into my heart when I hear them. And I know that I know that I know that this is something real. This is something real. Well, the Lord's been dealing with me about some of these things because we're coming to a place and we're, we're, we're coming soon to a place. We're not talking about something 50 years down the road. We're coming soon to a place where the church is going to rise up and be the church. It may start off small. It may start off in just a select couple of places. But I can tell you one, one thing about it. This will be one of those places. It, it just, I'll, I'll refuse to have anything less. And the Lord has really brought to my attention. And I think I referred to this earlier in the service. Where Paul is talking about to the Corinthians. He said, the last enemy that shall be put underfoot is death. I always read that scripture from a standpoint that... Physical death will be put underfoot because Jesus will come back and rapture the church. I've always thought about that and as being the only interpretation of that. And there's no question there's an element of truth to that. 
But I'm seeing it a different way. I'm seeing it as the church finally, once and for all, putting its foot on Satan's neck. Putting its foot and trampling underfoot the law of sin and death in the earth. To heal the sick, to cast out devils, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers. So that the church rises up to be the church. Because Jesus is very simply and very clearly stated that he's coming back for a glorious church. Not a beaten down church. Now if Jesus brought the Father glory by healing the sick, casting out devils, the main being made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing and so forth. If those were the things that glorified God in Jesus' day, what do we think is going to glorify God or make up the glorious church in our day? If not the same thing. I believe with all my heart it's going to be the same thing. Folks, we're coming to a day. We're coming to a day. And I'll even go so far as to say it this way. This church will be a place where the sick will come to be healed. We won't have to advertise. Matter of fact, we'll have trouble with people. We'll have trouble having enough room to get people in because the sick will find out this is a place where sickness and disease has no authority. We're coming to that day. We're going to walk in the power of God and we're not going to walk in it part time. We're not going to go weave in and out. We're going to walk in the power of God and we're going to be the glorious church that Jesus intended. I can't tell you that'll be by Christmas. I wish I could. What a Christmas present that would be. Huh? But the other side of it is this. You can say things like that and we can say, oh yeah, Lord, we're just waiting for you to do your thing. God's waiting on us to do our thing. This is not so much a matter of God doing something on his end of things as our eyes being opened to what has already been done on our end of things. And that's where I'm coming to. That's what God's dealing with me about. And I apologize for having been so ignorant up to this point. But boy, I'm starting to see some things. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger on the inside of us. And it'll happen. It'll be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Father, for giving unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. For opening the eyes of our spirits. That we may know what is the hope of your calling. That hope of your calling which includes authority over all sickness and disease. Authority to dislodge the devil's power in every respect. That we would know the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us. To equip us to do exactly that in the earth. That we would know, Father, the riches of the glory of your inheritance as children of God. Because we're in the name of Jesus. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the glory of God being made manifest upon your people. We want it, Father. We refuse to have anything less. Because we see it's your will in the word. Father, we don't pray selfishly. We don't want it just for us. We don't want it because we can make a name out of it for ourselves. No, Father, we want the name of Jesus to be magnified. So we ask that the reign of God would fall upon the earth. That would fall upon every person that names the name of Jesus. And revelation would come. Boldness would come. Upon the church worldwide. So that the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of your glory. Father, we know it's your will. We know it's your plan. We know it's your purpose. We know that you've done everything that you need to do for it to be a reality.
So, Lord, we simply ask you to open our eyes. Cause us to see and know what belongs to us. Cause us to walk in that place. Cause the church, this church, as well as every church that names the name of Jesus, to be known as a place where sickness and disease cannot exist, cannot stand, where the influence of the devil over people's lives is broken instantly. People are healed from addictions, set free from every work of the enemy. Thank you for making it so, Father. We stand ready to do your will and do your work. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Amen.